Welcome, gentlemen. Today we'll be talking with a Catholic OBGYN about the right to life, human sexuality, and so much more. Stay tuned right after this. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us with another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We're excited that you are here. If this is your first time listening, please subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. Or if you're watching on YouTube, I encourage you to hit that subscribe button there as well. Please write us a review, leave comments. That helps expand this, get this out to more men like you. If you've listened to this a few times, you love what uh, The Catholic Gentleman is doing, both with our memes and our blogs and these episodes, and you are discerning uh, donating during this season of giving, we encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash Catholic gentlemen, uh, anything from five, $10 a month, these sort of things just go a long way for helping us continue this ministry and reach more men like you. So as Sam was suggesting, we have uh, an amazing OBGYN on the show today. His name is Dr. Chris Stroud. He is a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist and a certified medical consultant in Creighton Model Fertility Care, also known as NAPRO Technology. If you don't know what that is, we're going to get back to that in this episode. With more than 25 years experience, Dr. Stroud's practice centers on infertility, recurrent pregnancy loss, something that I've struggled with natural birth, and minimally invasive robotic surgery. He is joined in his practice by two other doctors and six certified nurse midwives. Chris and his wife in a personal life, they have five children spanning ages between 23 and 12. He travels and speaks extensively on a variety of topics related to fertility care and minimally interventional labor and birth. His conversion to Catholicism and being authentic as a Catholic in the medical practice. He is co host of Dr. Doctor, an award winning radio show and podcast, dealing with things medical from a Catholic perspective. We're going to put this also in the show notes for you to look at later. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I am well. I'm uh, honored to have a chance to be here and talk with you, Catholic gentlemen. Oh, thank you. So I do. I've already suggested, you know, I know you have a conversion story, right? And it's a conversion story that didn't just start with being a Christian and becoming a Catholic. I also assume that the conversion story could take up the whole time here. So <laughs> I'd love to hear, though, um, what um, how God directed you in your life from your youth into your um your practice now as a devout Catholic man who's uh, trying to help people with the Catholic teachings of the faith in uh, fertility care. Yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, what a great chance to get to to do what we all like to do to tell our stories. You know, I told my wife I was going to be on your show and she said, what's, what's the name of it again? I said, these Catholic gentlemen. And she said, why do they want to talk to you? <laughs> well, thanks, honey. I appreciate that. <laughs> but, you know, my conversion isn't really a conversion. It's like I I would imagine a lot of people's. It's a series of conversions through the years, and um, and it would have been too much at any given moment. And God clearly understood that, so He gave it to me in little pieces uh, as they came. But you know, to try to hit the highlights, um, I was raised a Southern Baptist uh, Protestant. Um, I was born in rural Western Kentucky. Um, lived in Memphis, Tennessee right after that. And uh, I was pretty average Protestant, I would say. Uh, we did what a lot of Protestants do. We church shopped. We bounced around a lot, spent some time in the Presbyterian tradition, the Baptist tradition, Methodist. Um, and, and as I recall, never changing for any big theological uh, reasons. They were usually social Um my dad worked for Sears back when it was a company and mm. we moved a lot and I lived all through the South, you know, really the Protestant Bible belt, you'd say. Uh, and so went away to college and did what sadly a lot of college kids do completely lost interest in any faith and uh, drifted really far from faith and uh, started doing what I call in retrospect, worshiping at the altar of academic achievement. Mm. Uh, I sort of fell in love with getting good grades in science class. 
And also, that happens to too many of our college students, I connected with a couple of professors that were arduent atheists mm. um, and found myself being, you know, at best an agnostic, at, at worst, really an atheist. Mm. And it's been a lot of years that way. And um, time goes by. I, you know, get into medical school and into residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And uh, I meet uh, really the most amazing young woman in the world, my wife, Marianne. And uh, she knew all of these things about me. Um, I like to say now in retrospect, I was sort of a semi-professional anti-Catholic, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe even bordering on professional. Yeah. Um, we were cleaning out some boxes years ago and found some old editorials that I wrote and some papers that I wrote about how horrible Catholicism mm-hmm. was. Um, you know, the only thing worse than Christians were Catholics. That's, mm-hmm. I think that was the title of one, one of my, one of my editorials that I wrote. Uh, and she knew, wow. <laughs> <laughs> she knew that and married me anyway. Um, we would never allow my daughter to marry me. Never. That would be, that would be horrible. Uh, but she married me anyway. And um, I had a big, the very first conversion, I guess, was to uh, a faith or back to Christianity. And that happened uh, 1997, uh, really on the eve of the birth of our first child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you and, and many of your listeners know having a child will force you to think about things in ways maybe you haven't thought about them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that certainly happened to me. And I kind of confessed this to my wife. I was embarrassed. I was so prideful. I mean, after all, I'd been this terrible anti-Christian, anti-Catholic. Uh, but she graciously took my confession and said, okay, we'll go back to church. Uh, but of course I wanted nothing to do with the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was Catholic, a cradle Catholic. I would say if she were sitting here, not the best Catholic in the world, a little bit of a Christmas and Easter Catholic, but that's for another day. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so we did what I knew to do as a Protestant. We church shopped, you know, mm-hmm. had been in the church in 15, 17 years. And so we church shopped and we ended up landing ironically in the Episcopal church. Mm which in retrospect, we call it Catholic boot camp yeah. um, because it was Catholic enough. My wife thought she was in a Catholic church, but it wasn't Catholic. So I was willing to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it turned out that was a perfect part of God's plan because we learned about sacraments. We learned a lot about history and really, I think, got to know Jesus instead of just about him. And we spent a great decade there. Uh, in the Episcopal Church, um, and really learned a lot about each other, how to be married. We had more children. Uh, life was pretty good. Mm. Um, but you may recall, uh, this would have been, gosh, way back, 2000, 2002, and three. And there was a lot going on in the Episcopal Church, as is there today. Mm-hmm. The ordination of women, the ordination of openly homosexual bishops, and things of this nature. And we started to struggle with that. Um, much to our surprise, I think, uh, as a couple. Um, And I remember an older gentleman saying to me once uh, at a parish meeting, isn't it great in the Episcopal Church when you kneel at the altar rail? Now, Catholics, listen, the Episcopalians kneel at altar rails, but (laughs) (laughs) that's for another episode. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We'll bring you back. (laughs) But um, he said, isn't it great that when you're kneeling at the altar rail, the person on your left may be pro-abortion and the person on your right may be pro-life? And I remember thinking, I'm not so sure that's great. I'm not so sure I would I would tout that as something that, that we as Episcopalians should be proud of. Um, so that led to really a series of just questions and questioning. Uh, well, speeding up, uh, we ended up moving, or I ended up moving, to Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I currently live. And uh, it was one of those deals where my family couldn't come. So I had to spend three months up here alone before they could come. Um, and I'm way too cheap. I didn't want to spend the money to be in a corporate hotel or something like that. So we had an RV camper. So I decided I was going to live in a campground, uh, for three months, uh, in the winter in the Midwest. And I'd never been in the Midwest in my life. Um, not in retrospect, the best decision. (laughs) Uh, I almost froze completely to death. Um, 
So I would go to work all day and, and get home at night in my camper. I didn't know a soul. And I had a satellite dish on the top of this RV camper. And you would be amazed to learn that the only channel I could get on that crazy dish was EWTN. And everything else was blurry. But EWTN came in with a clarity, laser-like clarity. (laughs) Spoke to the soul. (laughs) Right. So I started watching EWTN pretty much every night. And I became uh, a Marcus Grodi junkie. And I watched probably every episode of the Coming Home Network. And, um, you know, I was watching this episode one night and he had a previous Episcopal priest talking about his conversion to Catholicism. And he was talking about Matthew chapter 16. And it's, it's the discourse with Jesus and Peter and the disciples. And he says, who do you say that I am? Right. And Jesus says, you know, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you didn't hear this from humans. You got this directly from God. And I had this sort of epiphany. Wait a second. Peter heard something directly from God. Peter, first Pope. Pope talks to God. God talks to Peter. God talks to the Pope. Wait a second. I think I'm Catholic. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, so I had to call my poor wife and say, you're not going to believe this, but I've been watching Catholic TV for the last three months. <laughs> and I think I want to be Catholic. Praise God. Wow. <laughs> well, praise him for her because she tolerated that, you know. Yeah, and right. She said, I've <laughs> she said, I've always been Catholic. I didn't stop being Catholic just because we started being Episcopalian. That that's great. I'm glad you're Catholic. I wanted to be Catholic. So we started RCIA just like many of your listeners. Uh, and then an Easter vigil in 2007, my then 70 something year old Baptist mother. And my wife and I uh, came home to Rome. Uh, and in no small part, thanks to Scott Hahn's book, you know, Home Sweet Rome, um, that someone gave me as a gift. And so we became Catholics. Wow. So that's two big conversions, one to Christianity and then one uh, to Catholicism. And you'd think the story was over there, but clearly God wasn't quite done with me yet. Yeah. So the, part, the interesting part of the story there was, I wasn't a practicing OBGYN then. I was a hospital administrator. Mm. So the church teachings on things like life and abortion and contraception had no impact on me whatsoever because I wasn't practicing. I thought they were interesting, but I didn't think I needed to wrestle with them because I, they, they weren't relevant in my life. So I was happy as I could be. Well, Fast forward, I make some job changes, decide to go back to practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I left Fort Wayne, went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin for a while. We came back to Fort Wayne when I decided to go back to practice, really in no small part because of the parish we entered the church in. Um, It's a tremendous parish. A shout out to St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church here in Fort Wayne. And we thought that's the best place that we could maybe have our children beat the Catholic statistic, right, of dropping out after Mm -hmm. confirmation. Uh, And that's worth a move. Uh, So anybody listening who's thinking about moving, you don't know where to go, go find a great parish and then find a way to live there. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It might seem backward by worldly standards, but it was the right thing to do. And um, as evidenced by our children who are all terrific young Catholics, it was it was the right thing to do. So we did that. Well, then I go back to practice. Well, now the things that didn't affect me, suddenly I had to confront. And so my next big conversion uh, happened as a result of a tremendous priest in a confessional. And um, I was uh, in the confessional and I'm going through my litany of problems. And uh, I say, oh, by the way, it sort of bothers me that I prescribe contraception and I tie women's tubes and I put in IUDs and I refer for IVF. It kind of bothers me. And then I moved on to the next, you know, relevant thing. And out of nowhere, the priest who has unusually large hands, puts his hand on my leg and he says, wait a minute. And I'm still a new Catholic, but I think, I don't think they usually touch you. I think this is different. (laughs) Something is amiss here. Um, And, father said, I want you to say that again. 
I don't know where this is going. So I repeat myself. And I say, that really bothers me. And he looks at me with the sincerity of Christ himself. And he says, does the prospect of burning in hell bother you? And I thought, oh, yes, Father. <laughs> that bothers me. <laughs> that bothers me a lot. And he so beautifully said, then you're going to make a change. And you're going to make a change today. You're going to stop doing these things. Wow. And, and I thought, oh, I was speechless. I thought, you don't understand. I'm a police officer and you're telling me I can't carry a gun. Mm -hmm. I'm an OBGYN. We prescribe contraception. There's no, there's no such thing as one who doesn't. I've never heard of this. Uh, all I could think of was the priest in the confessionals telling me to quit my job. And I thought, mm -hmm. well, that's odd. They wouldn't tell you that. Um, but he said, you need to go see someone. He sent me to a great physician uh, named Patrick Holly, who was a family physician and uh, was a Creighton medical consultant. And I love to say, you know, we're Catholics. So we met in a bar and uh, <laughs> the two of us uh, over right. a great beverage um, read Humana Vitae. And he handed me a large print copy of Humana Vitae. And he said, we're going to read this now. And uh, we read it word for word, line for line. And like anyone who's read Humana Vitae, I was convicted in the moment. Um, and there was no going back. I knew I was mm. going to make a change. Didn't know exactly the specifics I had to do it, but I knew I was going to make a change. Um, if you haven't read Humana Vitae, you just have to get your hands on it and read it. It is so readable. It's so beautiful. And it, it, it will change your life uh, for the better. Yeah, and it's not a long read either. It's not something that you're going to need a couple of days to go through. So, you know, no, wonderful. You don't, have, you don't have to be a PhD in theology to understand it. It's very accessible language, and uh, fortunately for me, and you know, it's it's just a wonderful read. And so, yeah. I knew I was going to make a change, uh, and that's where my change to Creighton came. Awesome. Um, so I, I went to Omaha and I did the Creighton training. And at this point, I was in a large employed hospital owned. OBGYN practice. And um, uh, it's funny, I had a, one of the reasons I liked Creighton is it takes about a year to finish, you know, all of the training. And I thought, yeah. that's perfect. I get a year to do nothing. I get a year grace period you know, uh, before I have to tell anybody about this insane idea that I've had. Mm. Um, and two days into the first week of training, I called my wife and I said, when I get back next week, I'm done. I'm not prescribing again. I'm just wow. finished it. I can't write another prescription. Mm. Um, so we were convinced that this was the right thing to do, but that didn't mean that we weren't going to fail. <laughs> yeah. And um, we thought, hey, we have little kids, we have a mortgage, we're going to fail. It's going to be colossal, but we're going to do it anyway, uh, but we're going to fail. Mm. So I get back and send out about 3,000 letters to patients and say, I'm not doing these things anymore, but I'm going to do this thing instead. Hope you'll still come see me. Um, and the absolute unexpected occurred. My practice exploded in the positive, um, wow. for every patient who didn't come to see me because I was this wacky Catholic who didn't prescribe three or four more came to see me for those very reasons. Mm. Uh, I mean, I had little old church ladies coming to see me for follow-up exams that they didn't need. Uh, <laughs> they just, <laughs> they just wanted to be supportive. <laughs> uh, it was, it was remarkable. The outpouring uh, of grace was just remarkable. Um, and so my practice did what we didn't think was possible. It grew and it grew and it grew exponentially day after day. It was growing and, and people were getting pregnant using the method and people who had recurrent loss were not having losses anymore and amazing things were happening. Um, and it became clear that I didn't belong in the secular practice that wasn't going to work. Um, I gave a talk to the Catholic Medical Association recently on this topic, and I was explaining to them, you know, there was a plot against me. My my non-Catholic partners were accusing me of hiding the birth control pill brochures. And, um, you know, one of my partners said to me, he told one of my patients on call that IUDs cause abortion. Something's got to be done, you know. <laughs> uh, and so I said, you're right. Something's got to be done. I, I'm, I quit. I'm leaving. So uh, my wife came out of homeschool retirement. She's a nurse midwife. And uh, we went to the bank and we said, 
however much you'll loan us, please loan us. We'll take it all. We're going to open our own office. Uh, and so uh, in 2014, we opened the Fertility Midwifery Care Center on faith and nothing else. Uh, no brilliant business plan, uh, just a lot of faith and a lot of hope. And uh, that was us. The practice has grown so much. We struggle to keep up with it. Uh, as you mentioned in your flattering introduction, we, we now have three physicians. We have six nurse midwives. We deliver more babies than we can. Um, I, I think last month I operated on people from both coasts and from Fairfax, Virginia, uh, who fly into town for napro surgery. Um, in May of 2019, we opened uh, the Holy Family Birth Center which is the, our market's only freestanding birth center. Uh, we called it Holy Family because uh, the consultants told us we absolutely could not call it that. It sounded too religious and it would offend people and they wouldn't come. So, of course, we called it that. And then, <laughs> and then we proceeded to name the three birth suites after our favorite saints. Uh, so Mary, Mother of God, uh, St. Uh, Magdalene, um, and, and St. Gianna are our three birthing suites. And um, we hope to deliver four babies a month to stay in business. And uh, now we're delivering on average 16 or 17 babies a month in that freestanding birth center. So oh, um, in short, that's our, that's our conversion. I say our because uh, it wouldn't have been a conversion without my wife by my side. Um, and it's been a series of conversions. And every step along the way, every time we stepped out in faith, God said, well done. Do it again. Yeah, uh, and the, the rewards were just remarkable and they continue to be uh, to today. So thank you for letting me babble on and, and tell my lengthy conversion story. Well, such a great That's testament. An extraordinary story. I am um, just uh, so, so amazed by how God can lead you through what our first, uh, at first appear to be uh rebukes or things that you have to wrestle with things that feel like painful like i'd rather just ignore that sweep that under the rug and just just do the easy thing and yet every time you accepted the challenge and kind of wrestled with god um that there was there was beautiful fruit from that um and um, I also noticed a couple of residences. I too lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and oh. uh, was Episcopal before I became Catholic. So, uh, <laughs> so, so some cool things there. But, uh, but, but I do want to kind of go back to this idea of stepping out in faith mm -hmm. because we have a lot of guys who may be listening, who maybe they're not an OBGYN, but God is calling them to do something that might be difficult. Um, for example, there might be a guy listening to this show right now who is their 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 wife is is pregnant. They're expecting. Maybe they're on a tight salary. They don't know how they're going to pay for a birth. They don't know how they're going to put food on the table, or how they're going to you know buy this baby clothes or whatever. And so I just was wondering, like, just based on your own experience, because experience is the best teacher, really. Uh, like, what would you say to a guy who's really wrestling with fear? Like God is calling them to take the path of openness to life. God is asking them to be countercultural and maybe have more kids than maybe their family thinks is a good idea or their coworkers think is a good idea or whatever. Yeah. And they're wrestling, they're wrestling just like you had to wrestle. Um, and just share maybe from your own experience um, what you would say to, to a man who's in that position. Yeah, I love, I love that question. Um, it's so relevant. And, and you know, you use a, a big topic like openness to life, maybe another child and don't contracept. But it doesn't have to be something big and, and important, so to speak, like that. It could be, you know, I'm going to receive on the tongue, even though nobody else around me does. It mm. could be... It could be anything where you feel that call and there's a fear, as you point out, to answering that call. Um, and I think the first thing I would say is try to reframe that fear as how fortunate you are that God has said, I'm going to tug on you um, because he could choose to ignore you, right? He's God. If he wanted to, he could ignore you and let you go about your happy, maybe mediocre life. 
but he's not. He's tugging on you and he's saying, I want you to step up at the water fountain and say, we don't talk like that here. Or I want you to do a whole host of heroic manly things. I want you to lead your family or your company or your friends. Mm -hmm. And and he chose you to do that. So accept that as thanks, God. I I appreciate you deeming me worth paying attention to. Um, and, and reframe that fear as, okay, uh, this is something you want me to do. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And I had this wonderful priest as part of my conversion, Monsignor John Kuzmik, who's now fully retired. And I was wrestling with contraception and I, as, a, as a soon-to-be new Catholic. And I thought, I get all this stuff. I don't know a lot about this Marian stuff, but I, I think I can get my, my brain around it but it's a mortal sin to take a birth control pill. I thought, wow, God, that seems like science to me, not theology. And I said that to Monsignor. He said, you know what? You don't have to get it. You just have to want to get it. Mm. He said, so if you'll just say to God, I don't understand, I don't get it, um, but I'll try to get it if you'll try to make me get it. I'll be open to listening. And I think confronting these big decisions can be the same way. You can say to God, I I don't like this. I'm afraid of this. I don't want to be broke. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be an outcast from my friends. And yet you keep saying, it seems, this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't get it. And I don't like it. And I don't want to do it. But I'll keep listening to you. If you'll just keep putting one of my feet in front of the other, I won't fight. Mm. Um, I don't think you have to get the whole thing at once, I think you got to just be willing to take a little bite of the big piece of the pie. That's, yeah. that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, and we're just doing the Advent right now. We're doing the Jesse tree with our children. And I'm amazed at how many of these Old Testament characters that God called, like Moses, for example, or Abraham, to do something scary. And they didn't want to do it. They're like, this is, this is insane. Or like, you know, they just like, oh, you're going to have a child at uh, 90 years old. And, and they just laugh. They're just like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like it. And, and yet they, they, and they stepped out and uh, prepared the way for the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I love that. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Yeah. I think you, also had some amazing priests in your life. So as a reminder to all of our listeners, pray for your priests because we need more men like that. We need more men that are, are willing to um, look you square in the face and, and speak truth, you know, of course with charity, but also just directly, right. Not, not circumventing. And, And we can all talk about and think back in our lives. And when we hear these homilies that, tend to go nowhere or be a personal experience and have no real call to action. And, mm-hmm. and so when, when we hear those, yeah, let's, um, let's thank them and, and be sure to uh, be sure to keep them in our prayers. So one of the things that I wanted to turn towards, and while it might seem um, basic to us, I'm sure there's a lot of men on the call is what is Creighton? What oh. is NAPRO technology? Um, I think this is really important for every one of our listeners to hear, if not for yourself, then to share with your loved ones and people who are near you. I know my wife and I um, struggled with four miscarriages, and mm-hmm. we actually were working with some uh, a NAPRO certified family practice uh, doctors who were really wonderful and everything. And they did a great job, but it wasn't quite the solution. And so we just, we just went to Omaha. We just took it to the next uh, step, which is where um, NAPRO is. And we are just having no troubles uh, um, conceiving and keeping pregnancies from then on out. It's been just a huge blessing and and a, and a godsend has transformed our lives for the better. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, about the practice and about you know, some of the statistics even, right? Because we, um, we hear IVF and, you know, that's the go-to when everything else is failing yet, even IVF's, uh, statistics or IVF's, you know, success rates are, are a fraction in compared to working with the body, understanding the body and, you know, and so, you know, what does the church have to offer? And this is it. So I'd like to hear you talk about that. Yeah, a great topic. I mean, so there are a lot of different ways to describe uh, the Creighton fertility model and NAPRO technology, but but really I would say a disease-based or a diagnosis-based approach 
to fertility management. Now, and I, I say fertility management because it's certainly a form of natural family planning, meaning a couple could could use it to space their children, that is to say, to avoid pregnancy. Um, so uh, that's certainly true. That's true of a lot of the natural family planning methods, whether it's the, the Billings method or the Marquette method or, you know, the couples to couples, a, a lot of different methods to avoid pregnancy. Creighton Fertility Model and NAPR Technology is probably most known for treating abnormal conditions. So that's why I like to describe it as a diagnosis-based or a disease-based approach to fertility challenges. So part of it is um, literal in terms of maybe surgery, but a lot of it is philosophical. And by that, I mean, it begins with an understanding that uh, a married man and woman who are engaging in the marital embrace should be pregnant. Hmm. You know. They're designed to be pregnant. Um, if they're not pregnant, it means there's something wrong. Uh, many listeners have probably heard the expression un unexplained infertility. Well, unexplained usually means unpursued, uh, sadly, uh, by my colleagues in obstetrics and gynecology. But, but if a woman is not pregnant, there's something wrong. The other principle is it's usually something that's knowable. There's usually something or some things that are in the way of an otherwise healthy couple not becoming pregnant. And we can generally know what those things are. And a step further, we can generally repair those broken things. Um, and so that's really NAPR technology. So if you think about the opposite of that, it's what happens in uh, fertility care today. So if, if you go to an OBGYN and you're not pregnant, they'll probably give you a few rounds of a drug called Clomid. You don't get pregnant. They'll send you to a so-called fertility specialist and they'll recommend IVF. So I would argue they're confusing the absence of pregnancy with the disease, when in reality, it's a symptom. So I like to, I like to use cardiology as an example. So if you go to your cardiologist and you say, you know, gee, doc, every time I get on the treadmill at the gym, I get chest pain. In this analogy, the cardiologist would say, that's no problem. Take two Vicodins before you get on the treadmill and you won't get chest pain. Most of us would say, hey, that's weird. Aren't you worried about what's causing the chest pain? And in this little analogy, the cardiologist would say, no, you asked me about your pain. I fixed it. Pay at the door, you know. Yeah. That's what happens in, in, in contemporary fertility, sadly, uh, that the woman's not pregnant. That's the symptom. That's not the disease. That's the symptom. Everywhere else in contemporary medicine, we use symptoms to point as icons to disease. We treat the disease, and then we observe to see the symptoms disappear. Uh, that's how contemporary medicine's practice. Mm -hmm. But in fertility, it's not. It's you're not pregnant. I can make you pregnant. And I can't tell you how many patients a day I see that maybe they've had a decade of infertility and they say, kind of pounding my desk, I just want some answers. You know, I just want to know. I want somebody to tell me that you can't be pregnant because you have endometriosis that's destroyed your tubes or something. I just want to know. Um, and so that's what we do. We get answers to the root cause of the problem. And then in many cases, we can solve those, those problems, sometimes through surgery, sometimes through medication, sometimes through both, um, and people get pregnant. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful, exciting thing. I like to say a couple should never ever feel as though that they have to choose between their faith and their fertility. Yeah, You know, a young couple is not getting pregnant and they're trying hard to be good Catholics and they're trying to follow the teachings of the church. And it says IVF is immoral. And, and then they're actually worried about well, what do I do with these frozen embryos? And, and it, what happens to the embryos that I don't choose to be put back in me? What, what do I do with them? Um, they're struggling with that. But then at the same time, they're saying, but we want to have children. What do we do? How do we solve that dilemma? Yeah. You solve that dilemma by finding someone in NAPR technology to help you get at the root of why you're not getting pregnant, fix that problem, and then you're open to life. Um, now, the other philosophical reality that in the Creighton world, I think we always try to say in the very initial encounter, and that is every couple is not called to biologic parenthood. 
Mm. You know, spoiler alert, right? Yeah. But that is just the reality. Um, the world doesn't like that. The world thinks children are a right, not a gift. Yeah. Um, you know, if they were a right, they'd be property and we'd sell our teenagers on eBay. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and not everyone is called to receive that gift. But if you're struggling with infertility, you don't know if you're called because you're, you're not whole. My job is to make you whole. Then you find out if you're called to parenthood or not. Um, but that's hard news to hear sometimes. But as we talked about earlier, it's the truth. And spoken in charity and love. Uh, it can heal people. Amen. Yeah. Well, I um, I want to ask a question that I think might be a little unusual because there, there's a spectrum uh, <laughs> within with among Catholics. Some Catholics don't even, they just don't care what the church teaches on these issues. Just I'm just going to do what I want. Um, there's other there's other Catholics that are like, oh well you know, we, we space our children and, and we use NFP faithfully and we, we chart every, you know, every day and, and uh, we have a very good grasp for our fertility and we're all about it. Yes. You know, and then there's some Catholics that say, well, we're just going to throw caution to the wind. We're, we're going to trust God with, with complete, I guess the word might be like providentialism. Like we're just going to, yeah. God's going to space our children for us if that needs to happen. Um, and um I, I understand the 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 desire to be radically trusting, but I'm wondering. You're a, a medical professional. I I'm just gonna, you know, have my opinions on these things. But I just want to ask you, like, is that a good idea? Like, is NFP on the one hand, is NFP necessary? Should it be a part of every Catholic family's, you know, every every Catholic couple's sexual life? Should that be just a given? Yeah. Um, on the other hand, is NFP sometimes, is it open to abuse? Because that's that, there's a lot of people who seem to think that these days that, that NFP is just basically Catholic contraception. And um, and so I've, I've heard both. And yeah. I would just love to hear your perspective on that as a Catholic medical professional. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I like that. Um, you know, strictly speaking, NFP is not contracepting in a biological sense to contracept means to prevent sperm and egg from uniting nfp doesn't prevent that but i think what you get at is the phrase a lot of people use are you are you using nfp with a contraceptive mentality yes yeah. you know we're going to avoid pregnancy and we're going to use nfp to avoid pregnancy and we're going to do it because if we just have two kids we can get that beach house next year, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, that's an example of a contraceptive mentality. Kids are a lot of work. Uh, the two that I have, I'm not that crazy about. So let's use NFP not to have any more, you know? Um, that's a contraceptive mentality. And, and I would argue as a lay person that that's immoral and sinful. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and that person and that couple that's thinking that way, they need some spiritual direction, you know? Mm -hmm. At the same time, to balance that, listeners need to know, um, right out of Humana Vitae, it is perfectly morally licit to choose not to have more children as long as you make the decision for morally licit reasons. Um, and they're not very complicated. You know, maybe you don't feel capable of raising more children. Maybe you have a special needs child and you think, I'm not capable of of raising another child while I'm raising this one. Um, maybe I have a medical condition that I think would endanger me so that I can't care for the children I have if I, if I get pregnant again. And there are a lot of morally licit reasons to choose to limit the size of one's family. But that doesn't give you an excuse to use a morally illicit way to accomplish that. You know, so yes, you have cancer and you can't get pregnant, but you can't use an IUD to accomplish that. You've got to use it to accomplish that. But, but, you know, to the other part of your question, I think there are a lot of young people, I see them as patients and they say, well, if we didn't want to be pregnant, why would we get married? Uh, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, why would we want to space or avoid? Why do we want to spend the time to learn NFP? We're going to just see what happens. And I have to admit there, there is a purity and a beauty and a simplicity there that it is hard not to admire. Mm -hmm. uh, I recognize that's not where everybody is, um, but I sure love it when I meet a couple that's that's there. Yeah. Um, 
But I think sometimes people might be afraid of NFP because they see those couples and they think, man, we're not them. Uh, we'll, we'll never be them. So NFP is not for us. And then we don't do ourselves a lot of uh, help when, you know, at pre-canna classes or other classes, it'll be time for the NFP talk, right? And a, a couple that's old like me shows, stands up there and they say, we use NFP and we have 12 kids. Um, and then, you know, every young couple in the crowd passes out and they think, yeah, I don't know what they're using, but we're going to use something else. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's overwhelming. They're not, they're not, yeah. they're not in a place to hear that. Um, but I'll tell you what's happened to me that I've seen couple after couple after couple that is struggling to avoid pregnancy. Maybe there's something goofy about their chart and mm -hmm. they look fertile all the time and they're not sure when it's safe, quote unquote, to be intimate because they can't tell if they're fertile right now or not fertile now. And they've yeah. tried the Marquette and they've tried Creighton and they've tried ovulation predictor kits and they're either abstaining all the time or they're just throwing caution to the wind and both are bad, right? They're really yeah. struggling. And several times I've said to them, you know what, why don't you spend a weekend and just prayerfully ask yourselves, why are we so afraid of being pregnant? Mm -hmm. And I would say 90 plus percent of the time that couple has come back, usually pregnant and said, you know what? We, we realized there was no reason for us not to be pregnant. We, mm -hmm. we had no reason to be so fixated on avoiding. And as soon as they stopped avoiding all of their problems went away and they typically got pregnant because they stopped worrying about it or thinking about it. Uh, and they usually go on to have several children, you know, so something yeah. had to sort of click into the beauty of procreation and what it, what it is and what we're called to be. So I know that's a long-winded answer to your question, but um, I, I hope I've covered all the points. No, no it's a very wise answer. <laughs> it does, yeah. it does, you know, acknowledge the good in, in, in those, those different approaches. And I think that, um, that the, the church doesn't prescribe one way or the other for a good reason. They don't, the church doesn't, drop drop the the mandate you must use nfp and the church doesn't drop the mandate you can never use it like they, there's there is freedom uh, as christians and you know saint paul talks about our freedom within limits freedom within limits and the church prescribes those limits yeah. um but uh, there's room for christian conscience and christian yeah. um uh choice there and i but I you know to your to your first example the the cohort if you will that says eh that part of Catholicism, that's not me, you know, yeah. we're contracepting. Um, I mean, and maybe I'm hypersensitive as a convert yeah. to dealing with that group, but you know, there's a, there's a word for Catholics who pick and choose from the catechism, what they like and dislike. Right. And it's called Protestant, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought you were going to say cafeteria. I like thought you were going to say cafeteria as well. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, and I certainly mean no disrespect to our Protestant brothers and sisters, but that is what Protestantism is. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, they've taken Catholicism and they've refined it and changed it and and chosen what they like and discarded what they dislike. Uh, and, and that's relevant to the popular events and popular people in the media today. But we don't get to pick and choose the truth. There's just one truth and um, right. the complete deposit of it rests uh, and the Holy Catholic Church. And so call yourself Catholic, but uh, be honest with yourself when you do it. Yeah, amen. No, I agree. And I think that there's something that you were hitting on too for individuals who practice, and this has actually come up frequently in, in the Catholic Gentleman group and things like that that I've seen is, you know, is when, when communicating regularly with your wife, the... Um, the openness to um, to unity and the openness to love of each other is just all of a sudden, you know, filled within within you. And and I, I, I say that because there's, you know, Satan wants it to to not be talked about. He he mm -hmm. he wants you to to harbor things and keep things, you know, deep down. But when you're always having to have these conversations with your wife about children and everything, there's a, there's a beauty and there's a grace that can be found in that. I'd also say um, openness to life, right? The 
a lot of people haven't received love to understand of love's infinite expansion, right? And and as all of us on this call have been blessed to experience, um, maybe we received it, maybe we didn't, but we can experience it now that like each of your child that enters into your life, it's unbelievable how uh, wonderful it is to experience loving them as much as you love your other child without taking anything away from one child. Right. And, and just growing in that. And I think it's, it's just, yeah, it's really something that, um, but you have to have that openness first, right? You have to have that, uh, yes, uh, removal of yourself for the sake of the other, you know, and, and your wife and your children, but it's just, it's such a beautiful, um, teaching with the church and such a beautiful um, necessary part of, of growing in holiness and and becoming saints um, in heaven. Yeah. You know, you talking about that openness makes me think of an an important observation. I mean, we're men talking about men Um, and, and listeners might say, well, he's an expert on women. Well, I am. And as a result (laughs) have developed a lot of expertise on men Uh, from, from now almost 30 years of talking to women about men. And um, I, I think I, I can't remember how many times I've heard one of my patients describing her husband when um, this kind of interaction that you're describing happens. So just imagine uh, when a husband comes home and says to his wife, I need to talk to you. I want to be a better Catholic. Hmm. I want to be better. I want to be a better husband. I want to live the tenets of the church. I want to get closer to Christ. And then, and then the process, I want to build our marriage and be better. Um, you will never look better to your wife than in that moment. <laughs> uh, suddenly you will be the most attractive spouse on the planet. Um, because that's what, that's what she's longing to hear. Even if she doesn't know that's the case. But, but woman after woman after woman in my years in practice has said, you're not going to believe this. My husband went to a retreat and, and he came home and he said, let's do NFP. Let's be open. Let's, you know, you're right. We should have more children or we should be open to it. And, and that's when we as men look like the men that I think we all want to be. We just didn't realize that was the way uh, to get there. But that kind of openness and transparency and vulnerability uh, and power all at the same time. Um, that's what we're called to be. And when we're doing that, we're being, we're being Catholic gentlemen, aren't we? Amen. That is so true. And, and, you know, I do want to just say something because I, I think a lot of men who listen to this are maybe thinking this right now, but NFP is hard, you know, yeah. <laughs> the secular world talks about, you know, um, um, the, the, there's, well, regardless, we're not going to talk about the second word. So what I want to say, though, is that it is hard. It is hard for men um, to make that sacrifice um, and to, you know, it could be very easy as a man. Well, I, I demand my my rights or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, she she <laughs> is not giving me that. So I'm just going to turn to pornography or something like that. And it can be very easy to take the low road and just give in to our passions and give in to our lusts. But we were talking earlier about this idea of wrestling, this idea of the church giving us a teaching that goes against everything that, that <laughs> our natural concupiscence yeah. wants to do. And, and, and um, you know, men are, generally speaking, have a higher sex drive than women. It's just a fact. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of guys out there who probably say, you know, I'd have sex every night if I could, you know. Right. But then your wife says, well, we've got to wait two weeks. Um and if I get pregnant right now, it's going to hurt my mental, you know, physical health. I, I really need a break. I really need a break from pregnancies. And then the husband is thrown a challenge. Okay, who do I love more, myself or my wife? Like, mm-hmm. and what a chance for a growth and maturity. But it is, a, it, it is an opportunity that could easily lead to greater sinfulness, or it could be an opportunity that can lead to greater holiness. Um, and we have the choice. We make the choice. Are we going to choose love or are we going to choose selfishness? Um, and this, again, this challenge of love that the church throws us, um, in this call to openness to life 
It is a challenge for each of us to choose to love our our wives more like Christ loves the church. And how did he love the church? Like all the way to the cross. So it is a challenge for us. And I, but I do just want to acknowledge that it is not easy, you know, in the NFP culture in the church, the brochures show people, you know, dancing in the meadows and it's all so happy (laughs) and it'll bring your marriage so much joy. And guys are thinking to themselves, like, it doesn't bring me any joy. It just makes me unhappy or whatever and, and resentful or whatever. And, but you have the choice. Are you going to choose love? Are you going to choose self? Um, and, uh, it's like that thorn in the flesh that St. Paul complained about. He's like, <laughs> yeah. just take it away. Just give me a break. And then Christ was like, no, you know, but, this is, but, but all listeners, you know, uh, draw near I'm a science guy. There's actually research on this topic. NFP couples have sex more often than contracepting couples do. Yeah. That's proven. Uh, yeah. It's in the, it's Good news. In the literature. Yeah. Right. It's in the literature. That's right. Amen. In the crazy world, we call it the spice index. And that is what does a couple do in those days? It's not really weeks, days that they need to abstain if they're avoiding uh, and they do other things. And, you know, the cynical couple will say, yeah, all we do is sit around and talk about, we can't wait until it's four days from now. <laughs> but, but imagine, you know, how great does, uh, does ice cream taste the day after Lent is over, right? right. Uh, to, to abstain brings wonder, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so well stated. Well, I want to actually ask another question. It was one that Sam brought up and, and something that um, I think is important now, right? So Texas um, just had a, a really uh, wonderful um, change there with the... Um, with the abortion ban. And I know that there's, um, a lot of Catholics that, uh, that actually don't agree with it and think the manner in which it came about was, um, you know, poorly decided, uh, you know, nevertheless, the lives that are being saved, there's also right up in my neighborhood, there's a whole new women's uh, shelter that's being opened up to actually help women, not only, um, maintain their pregnancy, but also hold on to women for the next the two or three years of their lives. They can go live in this location and they can learn how to, you know, farm or they can learn how to just raise their child um, and they can have that support as a single mother. You know, so there's really beautiful things just in months that are already happening here because, you know, God's grace is so amazing. And, um, um, but we also, the reviewing of the, the Roe v. Wade and, and things like that that are coming up. So, I'd like to hear your thoughts on um, the pro-life movement and on, um, you know, what's what's holding Catholics back or keeping people from um, from proclaiming. And I would just really like to get your thoughts on today, right now that we're experiencing here um, in the world. And Sam, I don't know if you had additional questions uh, to that, but, you know, about this topic. But I know I'd really like to hear you as an expert, Chris, um, speak to that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've been uh, fortunate enough to be tugged by God to testify recently in a couple of Indiana uh, federal cases, some of mm. which we prevailed and some of which we didn't. But, you know, the abortion issue, it, it, it's just so, it's amazing that we are this far in this argument. It it just seems like it's something that we would have we would have solved a long time ago, for lack of a better description. But you know, I think when I'm talking to people about it, I try to think of a way to get them to realize that it boils down to personhood. And instead of saying terminate a pregnancy, I like to say terminate a two-year-old. So if everywhere you're talking about abortion, if you just substitute two-year-old instead of fetus, and try to make the sentence and the paragraph and the thought make sense. Well, you can't. And and most reasonable people would say, well, no, that, that doesn't work. Well, it's because they don't think the fetus is a person. Yeah. And so if we can make them understand that the baby is a person, it's just a little one that happens to be living inside the mother's womb. Well, then all of those feelings they had about about destroying a two-year-old applied to destroying a two-month-old or a 20-week-old or et cetera. But that's tough to do. Um, But if you can make progress in doing that, I think you can make progress in converting people's hearts just through a better understanding 
without using buzz phrases and uh, and and you know political phrases of the day because that prevents you from thinking. I think the other thing that Catholics do a lot and pro-lifers, not just Catholics, is you know we have a natural aversion to to conflict. Um, I I think fundamentally it's almost an American feeling that I don't have the right to impose my beliefs on you, which I think is a noble principle. Um, uh, I don't I don't want to pass a law that says everyone has to go to the nine o'clock mass. You know, um, um, some people should go to the eleven, and, and I'm glad they do. But but uh, and I don't want to force them to. I don't think that's right. Um, and so that that same principle, that sort of American principle, I think incorrectly gets carried over to abortion. I don't feel like I ha- I shouldn't tell you and your wife how you should feel about abortion, which is logical, but it doesn't hold up under scrutiny, yeah. right? Because we're talking about killing a child. Yeah. And again, it goes back to personhood. Most pro-abortion people would never say, Look, if a couple just has an unruly two-year-old that's throwing food at the table and they just decide enough is enough, they can just exterminate the child. Yeah. I, I, there may be someone that we could find that would say that, but for the most part, a sane, right-thinking individual is never going to advocate for that. So I, th- I personally think that is the key to dialoguing with people to say, that is a person inside. That's not my religious position. Mm-hmm. That's the scientific biological position. If you take all the politics out of it. Yeah. Um, I had a great conversation once with an Amish husband, you know, in eighth grade education. And he said to me, where does it happen? And I said, when you, it, what do you mean it? He said, where's the baby happen? And I said, do you mean, where does the baby get made? He said, yeah, 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 yeah. Where's the baby get made? And I said, well, it's called a fallopian tube, and I'm going through the anatomy. He's not really interested in that. Um, he said, so the sperm thing and the other thing, they, they come together. I said, yeah, they, they come together. We call that fertilization. And this man, who I think was in his 60s, said to me, so there's two things, and they come together. What happens to the two things? And I said, well, they're gone. They, they don't exist anymore. He said, well, what is it then? I said, well, it's a new thing. It's the baby then. We call it an embryo. And so he looks at me and he says, so there was two things and then there's one thing, but then the one thing is not either of the two things. And I said, right. And he said, that's creation. (laughs) I thought I needed a 60 year old Amish man with an eighth grade education to teach me human physiology and reproduction, but he's exactly right. You know, so when does it become a person? I don't know, but at some point, and if I don't know the point it becomes a person, I better assume it becomes a person when those two things become a one thing that isn't either of the two things. If that's the case, I can't do anything to get in the way of that person's success and life. Well, if we can get people to travel down that road, then I think it's, it's a pretty short road. Um, but it's hard to get all of the junk out of the way to think yeah. that that way you know it is yeah. but but it's about personhood and if we can just talk about personhood and love and protecting the most vulnerable i think we can get there as catholics and we've got to be unafraid to step into a little bit of an uncomfortable space uh, we don't have to be obnoxious about it but we've got to be willing to just step there and dialogue quietly and in love and in charity and take people where they are and try to get them to a better place Maybe not the whole way in the first conversation, uh, but maybe a step in the right direction. Amen. Yeah, the, that's that's awesome. I, I, I would just, GK Justin once said, some of the time, sometimes the vices are are less dangerous than virtues run, running wild. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I, but no, really, like a lot of it is misguided love or misguided compassion. There, where they pit the good of the mother against the good of the child, and I, you know, I used to be the the communications director for a pro, you know statewide pro life organization. And I remember dialoguing with a a very pro abortion um, journalist, and um, but whenever we 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 get stuck in our conversation because she saw the only conceivable path towards good for the mother as getting rid of the child, right. and but her her intention was to help the mother. Like she really had compassion for the mother and like 
really had compassion for this woman who was in distress and she wanted what was best for that woman. But like you're saying, she couldn't wrap her mind around the humanity or the personhood of the child. Mm. And that was where she got stuck. Mm. Um, but the intention was good, which is hard for a lot of pro-lifers to wrap <laughs> their heads around. Right. Is that, that, that they could actually be compassion and love driving a pro-abortion advocate's advocacy. Absolutely. But once you acknowledge that, hey, look, we're both after the good here. So let's actually talk about what the good means. Mm. Like, let's actually define that and come to find out like, well, if we want the best for human beings, we want human flourishing here. What's the best path forward for that? And then that like changes the discussion from, from uh, opposition to one of, well, let's, let's work towards this. Like if mm. there's not enough crisis pregnancy centers, like let's, let's start them, you know, like <laughs> yeah, if there's not enough adoptive right. parents, like let's call people to adopt, you know? And, and suddenly there's like, there's a kind of a release of like the, the, the oppositional tension there. Mm. But um, w- regarding the specific Roe versus Wade case here um, that the Supreme court is reviewing right now, um, I'm really wondering like, as, as, um, Catholics, let's say a miracle happens. The Supreme Court throws out Roe tomorrow. Yeah. Like you're you're on the ground level here. You see this day in and day out. Um, you, you're working with very concrete cases. This is not an abstraction to you. Like what yeah. can pro-lifers do? Like let's say there's suddenly like th- thousands of women who are going to have an abortion now who can't and, and they're looking for help. Mm. What, can, what can we do that is most practical most helpful to women in those situations. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a noble, a noble question to pose. I mean, I, I like to, I like to remind people I've cared for a lot of abortion minded women through my career. And I can say, I don't think I've ever met one who actually chose abortion. It, it really chose her. You know, I, I can see a woman's face that I spoke with recently who, you know, she was living with a man with her child from another man and um, she was pregnant from a third man. And if the man she was living with found out, he would probably physically harm her, but most definitely kick her and her other child out on the street. So she's trying to choose essentially between two children. Which one does she save? Um, that, that's an untenable position for any human being to ever find themselves, especially today. That should never happen in America or in any country, but especially not in America. Um, And sometimes on the pro-life side, we and our colleagues, we forget the lack of humanity that that woman is, is experiencing. So what can we do to your point? You know, we've, we've got to remember that, you know, the problem is, you know, you say, well, if you, this woman is, uh, is going to get pregnant because her husband and insists on having sex with her. Well, that's called rape. Instead of instead of helping her have an abortion, let's prosecute him and 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 uh, and his horrible behavior. Uh, that's pro woman uh, to protect her from essentially a rapist, um, not punishing the child that was that was created. But but practically speaking, we've got to go above and beyond at tackling the root evils in society um, that lead women to being chosen by abortion, whether that's abject poverty uh, that typically involves uh, domestic abuse and substance abuse um, and sex trafficking is horrible that no one wants to talk about. Yet it's it's an equal pandemic to the coronavirus, I think I would argue, uh, in America. If we aren't willing to take on those evils, Having an abortion facility on every street corner in America is not going to solve the problem. Uh, To our analogy about fertility, I would argue abortion is the symptom of the much greater underlying evil of some of these other things that are forcing women to think their life is so miserable, they have no choice but to terminate. Mm -hmm. And despite what Planned Parenthood and other slick media campaigns would tell you, women are never happy about choosing abortion. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. I've seen patients years and years and years after their abortion that are still struggling with that decision. Uh, Because after all the sound bites are gone and all of the brochures are put away, in their heart, 
they know precisely and specifically what they did. Uh, and they feel terrible about it. So we've got to get at the reasons that they felt that way. And we've got to solve those problems. And, and there's no one better than us to do that, whether it's mm -hmm. through Catholic charities uh, and our parishes and other organizations, we've got the means to do that. We've just got to be willing to step up and do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I encourage men that are listening to pray about this, pray about how you can help, you know, these, these root causes and, and how you can, you might not know one of these women, but there are plenty of opportunities within your diocese, within your parish boundaries, um, or just Googling within your city. You know, things that right. need your help and, and need us to step into the breach, you know, um, for this this very noble and, and necessary cause. So, um, well, that's exciting, Chris. I hate to do it. We're, we're at the end. And so I would like you to maybe do one final little um, plug about where individuals can find you. Anything that you mentioned, I'm going to put in the show notes here, but we would and you know, any final comments that you'd have or like to, to speak to the men that are listening. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's very humbling to be on your show. Uh, thank you, listeners, for listening. Yeah. You know, uh, you wouldn't be listening if you didn't want to be a better Catholic man. And um, I'm no student of history, but I would argue there's not been a time in our history where we needed good Catholic men more than we do today. Whether you're called to religious life or our married life or single life, we need good honest, strong men that are willing to be the men God designed us to be. Yeah. Uh, and that includes fertility care for those that you love, maybe your spouse, your your sibling or a friend. Um, if you're struggling like that, find someone like me. It doesn't have to be me. Find someone like me. But if you'll go to NAPRO Technology, N-A-P-R-O-T-E-C-H-N-O-L-O-G-Y, it'll be in the show notes. Um, you can look me up, Chris Stroud. You can Google me. There's a pro golfer that's bald that looks a lot like me. That's not me. Uh, <laughs> not to be confused. Uh, but yeah, Google me. And we have a huge telemedicine outreach here. We're happy to help. And it's part of our mission to just help with advice via email uh, or, or other. So don't be shy. Step out in faith and and we'll certainly help you. But but thank you. Uh, and God bless you. And And I'll be praying for all of you. And I would ask that you please, uh, all of you, pray for me. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Chris. And as we remind ourselves and our listeners on every episode, be a man, be a saint. Thank you.